This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There's been a lot of news coming out of the Middle East, and there is news here in the U.S. relating to the Middle East as well. There are allegations that a Saudi oil facility was attacked earlier this month. There's an Afghan election coming up, and Trump went after Iran pretty aggressively in his address at the U.N. Climate Summit yesterday. Plus, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is going after some Near and Middle East college programs to reformat their curriculums uh, to address what her department is calling, quote, anti-Israel bias. Here to unpack all of this and more is Saeed Khan. He is a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East history and politics at Wayne State University. Saeed, welcome back. Great to be to back, Detroit Steve. Today. Let's start with that attack on the Saudi oil facility earlier this month. U.S. and Saudi officials are blaming Tehran, even though they are denying involvement in the attack. What do you think went on there? Well, I think, first of all, the fact that the Saudis are, are self-investigating, we have to remember that they also investigated uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which even U.S. intelligence agencies uh, point the finger squarely at the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman or MBS. I think it's quite telling that there's still quite a bit of ambiguity regarding uh, what the intel and the investigation have shown to the point where the government of Japan is still not persuaded about whether, in fact, uh, Iran was involved in any ways. But we see different gradations. For example, the British, the French, and the Germans have uh, said that Iran is responsible in some way, shape, or form. That doesn't mean a direct attack. Uh, It could simply be leaving the door open to suggest that Iran was acting through various proxies, whether it is in Iraq or whether it is in Yemen. I think it's also important to remember that it was the Houthi rebels whom Iran uh, does support in uh, the calamity that is uh, the the Yemeni war right now, uh, that it was the Houthis who immediately went ahead and claimed responsibility for uh, the, the, the attack. I think right now what we find in, in uh, Washington is a little bit of egg on the face that uh, despite the sale of a tremendous amount of uh, weaponry and also uh, uh, early warning defense systems to uh, Saudi Arabia, none of them uh, picked up uh, these kinds of munitions that allegedly came in uh, to, to attack the two oil facilities. So does that, does that suggest uh, some hijinks here and uh, um, maybe uh, an illicit attempt to blame Iran as a way of stoking animosity toward that country? Well, I think that it's uh, illicit is, I think, a subject for a longer conversation, Stephen, but I think clearly there's a reflexive uh, uh, intentionality here that anything that happens in the region uh, is then put squarely on uh, the shoulders of Iran as having been uh, responsible in some concentric circle or the other. Whether it is directly or whether it is indirectly, uh, Iran is uh, is going to be blamed for this. Uh, that has been a matter of uh, longstanding policy, but I think at the same time it demonstrates that particularly with this administration, there is a desire to show a full-throated support for its regional allies, including uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, as as well as uh, uh, at least the Netanyahu uh, administration in Israel. Mm. Uh, so the likelihood then of retaliatory strikes against Iran, what 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 are those? First of all, uh, no one has uh, declared this an act of war. In fact, even the Saudis have been rather pusillanimous about it. Uh, they have been trying to goad others, the entire international community, and more specifically the United States, to 
do the heavy lifting for them to to strike at Iran, uh, which is actually part of the modus operandi of the Saudis. Uh, why do it themselves when they can get somebody else uh, by paying for it? Uh, I think it's also quite telling that in yesterday's uh, rather sedative-laden speech of uh, the president at the United Nations General Assembly, he certainly didn't focus very strongly on Iran, uh, focusing more on condemning globalism and praising uh, patriotism and nationalism. But this would have been the platform for him to then try to marshal support from the international community for a stronger posture against Iran. And it seemed as though there was uh, yet a very tepid dialback of saying, let's just go ahead and work with diplomatic isolation as well as uh, more and intensive sanctions, while at the same time still floating the prospect that if uh, the Iranians wanted to meet in New York, that he would certainly go ahead and meet with uh, Prime Minister Hassan Rouhani, hmm. which which Rouhani, by the way, rejected outright. So, so put this in the context of the larger uh, relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, the U.S. and Iran under the Trump administration. Uh, certainly, he has moved us closer to the Saudis and, and with some, I think, uh, uh, negative consequences uh, for... For people in this country, you think of Jamal Khashoggi, which you you brought up earlier, the the ineffective response from the United States uh, about that. Um, What does this incident sort of add to that narrative? Well, I think what we find going on, Stephen, is that when it comes to the Saudis and the UAE, uh, this is not the only administration that has uh, appreciated their checkbook, or I should say their cash uh, flow. Uh, even under the Obama, uh, Obama administration, after the signing of the Iran nuclear deal, which of course the Trump administration has, has withdrawn from, uh, it was even under the Obama administration where we see a spike in arms sales to the Saudis and the UAE to ostensibly placate anxieties and concerns they had that Iran would somehow or the other breach uh, and or violate the nuclear deal. Uh, Trump has simply made that far more open, obvious, and uh, ostentatious. Uh, if that is the relationship that the Saudis and the UAE want, that the UAE or that the United States shows them love by selling them weapons, uh, then that is a very transactional relationship. At the same time, we also have the audacity of Russia and Vladimir Putin making a recent statement saying that, you know what, American weapons couldn't uh, protect uh, Saudi Arabia, the Russian S-400 would have. So it seems hmm. as though there's more than one person showing up at the um, at the front door of the Saudi palace uh, in order to sell weapons. Hmm. Uh, also, we saw the president yesterday go after Iran pretty hard during his speech at the UN Climate Summit. He said the world has to stop Iran from building a nuclear weapon, and he continued to criticize the 2015 nuclear deal that he has withdrawn from. Uh, how do you see that playing out globally? Well, it's fascinating that the uh, the Iranian foreign minister, Javed Zarif, uh, actually offered uh, a uh, terms for what could be a negotiation. He said that Iran would agree to all of the underlying 2015 terms, as well as even agree to greater scrutiny and uh, investigation from international agencies like the uh, IAEA. However, what the Iranian demand is, is that the United States uh, lift all sanctions, and in fact, that that pledge should be ratified by the U.S. Congress. Uh, Zarif knows fully well that the U.S. Congress is not going to go ahead 
and ratify any such agreement. Uh, he saw that in 2015 how much opposition was there by various lobbying and special interest groups to the deal in the first place and how it barely squeaked by. And remember, the uh, the nuclear deal was, was never ratified, uh, which of course allowed then uh, the president to walk away from it uh, simply by executive order. So this is a, a high-level chess game that the Iranians are playing as well. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, uh, they've moved beyond this. They see far bigger issues, and part of that has to do with the fact that China is now providing a very strong counterweight to the United States. They have pledged $280 billion for infrastructure investment within Iran because Iran is going to be this crucial geographic pivot point in their rather ambitious Belt and Road Initiative that's going to go from Beijing all the way to Rotterdam, Netherlands. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Saeed Khan, a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University. We're talking about what is going on in the Middle East right now. A lot of stories coming out of that region of the world, and of course they have an effect here in the United States. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think of the attacks on Saudi oil facilities. Uh, tell us what you think about what the president said about Iran yesterday at the UN Climate Summit. We are also going to talk about the U.S. Department of Education, which has ordered Duke University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to remake their Middle East Studies program because they have accused those programs of having a, quote, anti-Israel bias. <clears throat> As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313 You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we will work you into the conversation. Um, uh, Said, I want to talk about uh, U.S. forces stepping up operations in Afghanistan to increase pressure on the Taliban Following these failed peace talks, uh, what is going on with the relationship between the United States and the Taliban? I, I was surprised, as many people were, to hear Donald Trump say that he was prepared to meet with them at Camp David right around the September 11th anniversary. Um, I thought that was probably not a great move. Um, at the same time, uh, he, he seems interested uh, in in putting more pressure on the Taliban to, to, to behave differently. Um, what is the strategy here? Uh, there is no strategy. I think that's a simple way to put it. Uh, we have to remember that uh, six weeks before uh, 9-11 in, in the year 2001, uh, the Taliban were in fact uh, meeting uh, with oil executives in Houston. Uh, so there has been a longer uh, relationship with the Taliban uh, despite uh, their complicity with al-Qaeda in uh, 2001, and uh, despite uh, their unshared values with, with the United States. Trump is simply looking for uh, some kind of exit strategy from Afghanistan. He recognizes that, that it is uh, indeed a, a quagmire. At the same time, he can't quit Afghanistan for two reasons. One is because of the mineral rights uh, uh, the, the big cache of minerals that are available in Afghanistan. And second of all, and again alluding to uh, Iran uh, earlier, uh, China has a major stake uh, within Afghanistan, again because of geography as well as because those are minerals that it wants for its own economy. So is there then a noble face-saving way to pull out or at least to go ahead and reconfigure its relationship with the Taliban when it comes to the government? Part of the problem is that 
the United States has never fully understood the tectonic plates of Afghani politics, the fact that it is still very, very tribal, and to look at Kabul and try to define it as being uh, indicative and representative of the rest of a rather frontier, rustic, uh, and tribal-based country is uh, like saying that Ann Arbor defines the rest of Michigan. <laughs> uh, it is uh, it is seen as much more of an outlier. So we have, unfortunately, a dearth of expertise and really will within the U.S. State Department uh, when it comes to understanding uh, the various complexities of Afghanistan. And I, I fear that it's going to continue uh, that way uh, in the near future. Mm. Uh, let's talk about uh, Betsy DeVos in the U.S. Department of Education, uh, focusing in on two uh, Middle East Studies programs, one at Duke University, the other at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, saying that they are uh, full of anti-Israel bias and saying that the, the department will withhold funding from those universities if uh, they don't remake them. I, it, this is another really extraordinary move by the Trump administration, very aggressive, um, not something we've seen from previous administrations. No, not at all. I, I think it's also probably no mere coincidence that Duke is being targeted. Uh, this was, uh, of course, the uh, the alma mater of Stephen Miller. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many speculate that uh, he trained his focus uh, on, on these two uh, institutions. These institutions, actually, when it comes to this program, are, are joint. It is a merged program or it is a, uh, a consortium which allows uh, graduate students on one campus to then benefit from the faculty and the resources at the other. Uh, full disclosure, I know many of the faculty both at Duke and at uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill respectively. Uh, for them, the issue of Middle East studies and uh, Islamic studies more broadly is really not very politicized. Uh, people like uh, Bruce Lawrence, Miriam Cook, uh, Carl Ernst, uh, Omid Safi, uh, for example, uh, these tend to be fairly ivory tower-esque uh, academics. If there was the case to be made about institutions which perhaps uh, are uh, more, uh, say, explicitly, if you will, uh, critical of Israeli policies and, um, and uh, Israeli politics, uh, we could probably look at places like Columbia University, uh, probably even Georgetown. Georgetown, of course, would probably not be touched because of the amount of Gulf money that goes there. And it seems as though given the uh, affections that this administration has for money and for that region of the world, uh, they will look the other way. Uh, it is certainly something that would, uh, for even the casual observer, appear to be chilling. Uh, the very idea that somebody uh, is going to encroach upon the university and second guess what is the scope and the scale of not only the studies, uh, but also the kind of research that is being done there. So, so is there anything at all, though, to the idea that uh, graduate programs in Middle East studies or uh, uh, these kinds of programs at other schools even are, are biased against uh, Judaism and Christianity? I mean, um, we, we hear all the time about, about lopsided uh, ideology in, in academia. Is there anything at all to those claims? Well, first of all, I don't think that the uh, criticism that is being levied by Secretary DeVos has to do with uh, what she sees as the favoring of Islam over the teaching of Judaism and Christianity. After all, Duke has a very, very prestigious divinity school there. Mm -hmm. It seems as though uh, the focus is on what is uh, perceived to be 
uh, an anti-Israel bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, of course, is going to be in the eye of the beholder as to what then is the threshold for being seen as criticism, legitimate academic and scholarly criticism, or what then uh, bleeds into what can legitimately be seen as anti-Semitism as well. And these are debates that happen every day in uh, college classrooms uh, across the country, and probably not even limited, uh, one would think, to uh, the topic of Israel. Uh, A bigger topic that perhaps is much more pervasive on college campuses would be perceived as legitimate criticism of the United States, of government policies. And if this then becomes the first or the opening salvo in the way that uh, the Department of Education can leverage funding for institutions, then it is perceived that uh, what about a, uh, a campus or what about a department that seems to uh, be critical of a particular administration or of American policy writ large. For example, a course being taught on the Vietnam War or uh, current uh, American foreign policy would certainly then uh, be vulnerable to uh, the rather mercurial efforts of, of a Department of Education saying, yeah, that's out of bounds. Yeah, it's kind of the camel's nose under the tent, right? Uh, if you can, if you're the Department of Ed and can uh, can beat up on UNC and Duke for their Middle East program, what else What else can you insist upon in terms of content at, at universities? Well, if you're going to invoke a camel, then I guess a Middle East studies program is the best one to do. <laughs> right? <it>. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is there fear uh, among academics that this administration wants to be more aggressive about content and content control uh, on, on campuses? This is, again, this is not something we've seen past administrations really focus on? It seems as though it's the first time, Stephen, that it's coming from the federal government, but uh, from the state boards of education. Uh, and this, of course, then more directly affects public universities as well as K-12 through programs. There has been a, uh, a, a very strong uh, process of trying to uh, revise history, uh, uh, amend textbooks. Uh, we see particularly this happening in the state of Texas, that uh, certain elements and certain narratives which uh, don't fit within a, uh, uh, a particular bandwidth of what America is, what America should always be, is now being challenged and is uh, essentially being coerced uh, into classrooms. So definitely something that we see as being challenges of, uh, of academic freedom. Okay, Saeed Khan, I know you have to run and actually teach a class here (laughs) at Wayne State University, but I really appreciate you coming by uh, to talk with us about about what's going on in the Middle East. Thanks for being here. Always great to be here. Thanks, Stephen.